My name is Pablo Fernandez Velasco. I'm a doctoral researcher at Institution Nico. And today I will be presenting this talk about FNQ wandering and situation is wandering. I will do a comparative analysis of disorientation practices, uh, such as the derive of the situation is international and the wayfinding practices of the Evenki people of northern Siberia. My central research topic is on disorientation and in particular on the phenomenology of disorientation. And when most people think about disorientation, they think about the negative aspects of it. So they think about feeling confused, feeling helpless, um, about anxiety, about the feeling of diminishment. And this is what a lot of the research on disorientation has been about and what a lot of my previous research on disorientation has been about. But there is also some positive aspects that sometimes come with the experience of disorientation. Um, the way that the geographer Marcella schmier de Friedberg puts it is that there is a getting lost that is endowed with positive balances, imagination and sense of discovery. So great example here might be the, the reef or the drifting uh, practices of the situation is international and this is a very important practice in psychogeography and it consists on giving up on one's usual ways of moving through space of one's spatial routines and trying instead to be attracted by the possibilities of the terrain, to be pulled by the terrain in given directions. And the way that the anthropologist uh, La Cecla puts it, in a derive, getting lost is aimed at restoring value to the undecidable and radically anarchical aspect of a spatial experience. So in Schmidt Friedberg's um, review of different accounts of these positive aspects of disorientation, we find the following features. Um, it seems to happen when there is a lack of origin, location and destination. Uh, there is a sense of having no set purpose uh, in the wandering. And here, when this happens, the disorientation helps one getting beyond simplistic models and establishing a new kind of relationship with space. So one suspends usual ways of movement and gets drawn by the attractions of the terrain instead. And this is a way of engaging with the undecidable aspect of a spatial experience, of engaging with the uncertainty um, of the environment. And the overall result is a particular experience of freedom. In some previous work, I have been studying what might be called the negative or the standard case of disorientation, and I have argued that the best way to characterize it is as a destabilization and integration of egocentric and eocentric frames of reference, resulting in a destabilization of the subject's horizon of experience. So to see what this means, imagine that you are well acquainted with Oxford Circus and Oxford Street, this area of London, uh, so if you're walking um, around Oxford Circus, then you will have a sense of where Marble Arch and Tottenham Court Road and Regent Street, maybe the Apple Store are, and you will feel where these places are with respect to you. 
So you will not only have an allocentric um, representation of the space, but also an egocentric. This will be integrated with an egocentric representation of the space. And if you get lost, you lose the sense of where all of these uh, places are. Um, you know how they are in relation to each other. Uh, you might know that uh, if you follow Oxford Street, you will pass both Marble Arch and Tottenham Court Road. And you can tell that to your left is a certain wall and to your right is the road, but you become unable to position yourself with respect to this larger scale environment. And this means that your horizon of experience, uh, the one that's framing uh, your experience becomes somehow diminished or unstable. But how can the destabilization in the integration process of allocentric and egocentric frames of reference ever hold the potential for experiencing a sense of freedom and for establishing a new kind of relationship with space? So to tackle this different, this difficult question, um, I, I will now go through a comparative analysis with the wayfinding practices and the environmental experience of the Evenki people in northern Siberia. Uh, the Evenki are a Tungusic or origin uh, people who are very famous for their wayfinding skills. And I have gone on to expeditions to the Venkia region of Siberia in 2019, one in the winter and one in the summer, um, to different Arctic and subarctic regions to work with uh, semi-nomadic hunters. And I've also been in contact with some nomadic reindeer herders and to study the wayfinding practices and, you know, do some phenomenological analysis of these practices. Now, it, central part of these uh, wayfinding practices in the ethnographic literature is what's called skillful walking. And the idea is that dwelling on the taiga is based on a skillful attunement to a place while moving through it. This is a very embodied practice. Um, you can tell, for example, the Evenki uh, tend to wear very thin soles so they can feel the ground. And there are several studies um, of how they walk in a very particular way. And this is also a practice that's embedded within a rich network of paths. And this is not, this is paths in the sense of tracks on the forest. They're not uh, marked paths, even, even in the way of hiking trails that um, one might find in the UK. Um, and I, I was unable to, to notice most of these paths, but they were, they were very aware of where they were and where they took you to. And they could sense the, the potential of following these different paths. And they also have a very, very vast hydrological knowledge. Uh, they will know uh, the rivers and the tributaries of the rivers for a very large area, even a much larger area that they will ever uh, need, to, need to cover. And this also has to do with um, having a certain learning practice and in their culture uh, they they learn the way that um one might learn multiplication tables uh children will be reciting uh the main rivers and their tributaries and they also have a very developed toponymical system so they they have a very good typology of landscape they 
have very detailed understanding of landscape types and they can make inferences based on those types of landscape. So based on where they are and just the type of landscape, they can infer um, where there might be a river or uh, what other types of landscape might be surrounding them. Now, it's important here to bring a distinction in anthropology between mental map theory and practical mastery theories of wayfinding. So according to the mental map theory, wayfinding is carried out in the light of stored spatial information in the form of a mental map of the terrain, plus presumably some inferential schemes of converting this information into suitable practical decisions and actions. So the idea is there is a mental representation of the environment, and one infers and updates their position as um, as they walk, and this is um, this is how navigation is supported. And the practical mastery proponents conceive wayfinding as a skill performance in which the traveler, whose power of perception and action have been fine-tuned through previous experience, feels his way towards his goal continually adjusting his movements in response to an ongoing perceptual monitoring of his surroundings. So a very different view apparently, but in a, in a recent review, fairly recent review uh, by Eastonim and, and Dwyer, um, they, they look at uh, the debate in anthropology and spatial cognition in psychology and neuroscience and they argue that the map versus mastery debate corresponds to the difference between survey and root knowledge. And that the two debates, that the two theories and the debate are actually complementary. Because human beings both use mental maps and root knowledge during navigation. What varies across cultures then, and also across individuals, is the degree to which one type of navigation dominates the other where absolute people will tend to use survey knowledge or you know, will tend to rely on mental maps of the environment and relative people will tend to um, use root knowledge and they will tend to rely also on what might be called practical mastery. It's interesting because there is a correspondence in how they use maps and how they sketch maps, where absolute people will orient the map according to an absolute coordinate system, like north, south, east, west, and relative people will sketch non-oriented maps. So here, what's very interesting is that the Venki are a very clear example of a sketching non-oriented maps and hence probably of being a relative people in this sense. This is a map uh, sketched by an Venki. The horizontal lines are rivers, are the main rivers, the Aichte, Tungurska and Umuksa. And the other straight lines are their tributaries and the dot is their itinerary. Um, throughout different uh, campsites. And you can tell that the whole map is oriented based on the rivers, something that was also found in Soviet ethnographic accounts um, in, in the last century. And we, we wanted to, to test, um, you know, also like what Evenki thought of maps, if they ever use maps, and we were interviewing them and one of them actually told us that they had learned how to use maps in military training and that, you know, this, this hunter had become very good at using maps and when he was in a new place, he was able to bring out the map, look at local landmarks and kind of triangulate his position with a very uh, high precision. 
he was quite proud of that and then we asked him and is using a map similar to how you orient in the taiga uh, or do you ever feel like it would be nice to have a map and he was very surprised by the question and he kind of laughed it off and said that um, a map is kind of useless in the taiga because uh, to walk in the taiga you really need to know the place and that has nothing to do with maps and this was the kind of general um, attitude of the Evenki that maps were just something like a game um, that had very little to do with uh, wayfinding what's interesting is that in the same area there was a Russian hunter who was also very skilled and who also did not get lost in a similar area and when we asked him about his wayfinding about his methods he gave uh, without prompting a very different account I have this map in my head you see of the whole region where I hunt and a bit farther on a very detailed map with all of the mountains and with how crests and valleys are oriented and then I keep track I look at the mountains and I know which ones they are and I know where to go and I always know where north is always now you can see that there is a very big difference between the Slavic hunter who has a clear map of the area and the Evenki hunters who must be said to rely more on root knowledge and on a skillful walking on what might be called practical mastery and this really changes how they experience the environment because the Evenki um, perceive the territory as a field of open possibilities of potential directions always in relation to the person's location at any given moment and you can see how this practical mastery and this egocentric way of uh, perceiving the space resonates with the embodied practice and the network of paths that's part of the system of skillful walking it becomes more challenging when, when we look at hydrological knowledge and toponymical systems so for toponymical systems for the typology of landscape types it's not quite map-like it's much rather a heuristic it's inferring types of landscape that are surrounding an area based on the type of landscape on which one is and hydrological knowledge does not really work either like a coordinate system or like a series of landmarks um, with which one can represent a space so again they obviously use them to sketch maps but that's not really how they experience the space and we can see it actually when we look at the maps they sketch when we look at their territory so here the map is a sketch between two rivers the Tunguska, the Tungursa and the Umuksa and the Evenki hunter follows from their campsite down to one river uh, on the way crosses the path of uh, of a prey of a potential prey and then it starts crisscrossing up to the other river and then down again and when they're going down they find a tributary then they find the um, the prey they shoot it they kill it and they follow the tributary back to the main river back to another tributary and back to their camp and what's interesting here is that they are able to move very freely and not to worry too much because the river is delineating the area where they are walking so they never cross the river 
while they're hunting in this area. Um, and it works this way as a kind of safety net, and it also works as a route. They find the river and they're able to trace it back. And again, the toponymical knowledge and heuristics can tell them where there are rivers around them. So they don't need mental maps of the area because they have this very complex system um, that allows them to forget all concerns in order to immerse themselves in the situation. And it's extremely important for the event key because it's key to what they call manakan, which is a feeling of autonomy or in which self-reflexivity falls away and they experience a unique sense of freedom. And if you look at the etymology, which means to make one's own way, you can see that it has a strong connection to wayfinding. Because manakan comes from the ability to walk and travel alone. And landscape also plays an integral part of this ethos because, you know, what, what areas you can walk alone through determine the extent and the intensity of the manakan experiences. And also because during the manakan experiences, one perceives places in a unique way. And this goes to say that as a result of a skillful walking during Manakan, the Venki perceived the landscape as alive, as capable of responding to their actions. And it is this playful attunement to a living environment that engenders the feeling of Manakan. Now, interesting here are chance encounters. So the Evenki, when they are in the settlement, they long for the freedom, self-autonomous organization and a spatial order of the big forest. And they feel trapped, as it were, they feel very constrained by the routine, the spatial routines of the of the settlements. And whenever they have a chance encounter, um, they change the route. So if they are walking and they find someone, they will follow that someone to wherever they're going. And when we were there, this will happen to us all the time, where we'll meet people, they will come and follow us to wherever they were going. Once we arrive, they will ask us to follow them to some other direction. We'll meet someone else on the way. And you could be crisscrossing paths with no particular goal in mind just to be walking with people and to get the enjoyment of walking together. And these chance encounters liberate the traveler from the prescriptiveness of the initial purpose of a journey and allow him or her spontaneously to change the route and combine different tasks and possible outcomes. And this fills the situation with joy. And here, prescriptiveness is really the key word. Because Evenki cultural practice of movement aim to read the experience of the environment of any prescriptiveness. So the Evenki have a renowned passion for exploring new territories, and they have several. They have a ritual, for example, in which they wander between secret places, uh, often in circles or making loops. And when we talk with reindeer herders, they told us that very often they leave the decision making during uh, walking to the reindeer. Uh, which ensures moving in non-prescribed ways, similar with dogs. Like Hunter told us, the, the dog runs here and there, and as we go, everything is surprising and exciting. So we've seen that the integration of egocentric and authentic frames of reference can assist navigation for people relying chiefly on survey knowledge, but it also over-determines the navigator's horizon of experience through expectation and anticipation. This precisely this integration that the Evenki go to great lengths to avoid. So skillful walking makes possible for them to navigate without constantly updating their position in some mental map of the environment. The result is that the Evenki experience themselves as free individuals moving through an environment that is alive and rife with possibility. Here's the stark contrast between someone who experiences a set of invisible landmarks 
framing the environment and the Evenki who experience the environment as very much underdetermined and constantly evolving and constantly open to new possibilities. And here we can see how the features of joyful disorientation um, resonate with the features of Manakan. So the of a lack of origin, location and destination and having no set purpose. It's very similar with the Venki notion that having a set purpose spoils the pleasure of being on the road because it prevents one from being immersed in the journey. Or getting beyond simplistic models is very much related to the self-autonomous organization and the spatial order of the big forest that the Evenki are always seeking. And when we think about this, like suspending usual ways of movement and establishing a new kind of relationship with space, it's really about establishing a kind of relationship with space that's similar to the one of Manakan, in which one perceives places in a unique way, in which territory is perceived as a field of open possibilities, which again echoes the idea of getting drawn by the attractions of the terrain, by the possibilities of the terrain. And this aspect of disorientation opening this possibility of engaging with the undecidable aspect of a spatial experience corresponds to this freedom of spatial evolution that is so important for the Evenki. And fundamentally, both for the Evenki and for um, psychogeographers, there is an experience of freedom with these practices. So in this way, we can really think about these disorientation practices, such as the situation is the reef, as a way of abandoning survey knowledge through disorientation. So when we're disoriented, there's a destabilization in the integration of egocentric and allocentric frames of reference, but this actually opens this whole field of possibilities uh, that were occluded before by our representation of, our spa of the space that was overdetermined and constraining our experience of the environment and of ourselves within that environment. I think this is quite well captured. I'm gonna close here with a quote by Schmidt de Friedberg saying, getting lost becomes a practice of resistance to the informization of landscapes, to abandonment of the daily ritual of getting to know, producing and organizing places. <laughs>